Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. <laughs> so that's kind of the thing. And um, so we've been focusing on, I've been focusing on this for it became my day job in 2008. It was it, be, it was a personal thing starting in 2000 after I bonked at my first marathon. Okay. okay. I said, this doesn't work. It was the first right. time I carb loaded and it just, my training had gone well. I was on course to run a sub three hour marathon. No problem. All my training indicated my, my times up to mile 18 indicated it. And I, you know, that was my first experience in 2000. Like whoa, this didn't work. So I switched immediately to higher protein and fat and still carbs, still mm. plenty of carbs, but, but, and I ran three marathons after that. No problem. Just, just went right through them. Okay. And that set me on the, the, the path. And like I said, in 2006, I was introduced to Vespa and then 2007 and eight, I transitioned into making this my day job. And so, you know, the Vespa is not from a sales standpoint, but the more I'm exposed to it, not just from my use, but working with people, um, it's a natural product. It's actually classified by the FDA as a, as a food-based beverage, not a dietary supplement. Mm-hmm. They actually, we actually, the people I, I bought the company and distribution from uh, classified it as a dietary supplement when they originally registered it. But we had an inspection and the FDA said, this isn't a... Uh, the dietary supplement is the food. Okay. And so it's, it's, so it's so natural that it's, it's classified as a food. Um, so I, I knew it worked cause it worked for me and I had other couple of other friends. And like I said, my friend Paul said, Mojo swears by it. And, and mm. but it's, it's just so exotic, right? <laughs> a metabolic catalyst. And the reason I was open to it because like from 2000 to 2006, I was already doing a form of fat adaptation. It was pretty crude at the time. Mm-hmm. But when my friend tossed me the pouch and talked about fat metabolism, I'm like, oh yeah, this makes sense to me. And that's that's where the problem is, is because when I did this, got this as my day job, I found out how how wrong I was. I mean, I didn't know about how carbs were just so, that was it. And that's 2006 was when Louise Burke published that nail in the yeah. coffin. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. And then we we'll unpack that, that a little point. bit so our audience can understand the concept, the the importance of that. And then you said she retracted it later after. If you would outline that, that would be really helpful. Yeah, we'll go into that here shortly. But but Louise okay. Burke is one of the foremost uh, sports performance nutritional researchers in the world with the Australian Institute of Sport. Yep, and she and other researchers have been trying to crack the code on fat metabolism for years, and um, haven't been able to do it. And and that and there was a lot of push in the late '90s, early 2000s about this as the keto diet, the research on keto diets were starting to come out, and you know the the logic that I posited early in the podcast about we have limited source of energy on us mm-hmm. you know why are we using that and we're using our fight or flight thing that's you know they were thinking the same thing but you know for performance sports they didn't they just couldn't crack that code and then 
of course, at that time, also Chris Carmichael was just blasting out that it wasn't the car, you know, because some people were making noise about the unintended consequences and mm-hmm. and the GI issues and the bonking being caused by the carbs. Um, so there was this, you know, I at that time, I, you know, I, that's when I learned when I made my day job that I was like, what I was doing was totally screwed up. I was just getting mm. laughed at. I mean, I mm. remember my first interview in June of 2008 with a guy named Scott Dunlap, who was a trail runner, and he had one of the first blogs on it. And he, he was using the best button. He just worked for him, right? So he interviewed me, and we I was talking in a cruder sense the same thing, like, that's your fuel, and this is what this does. Um, yeah, five minutes left in your meeting. That doesn't matter. That'll Yeah, we can go as long as we want. Okay, cool, go. So anyway we got blasted in the comments. I mean, if you read the common sense and we were torn to shreds, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that was time. That was the time. And Louise wrote this editorial saying this whole idea of fat metabolism is ridiculous. You can't use fat as a performance fuel source. And okay. She, Jaron Kump, Jaron Kemp, uh-huh. another just really tried to make it go. And then Steve Finney did a bike racer thing in 1982 published in 1983. And that was his, the timing of that bike racer study was just bad because that was exactly at the time that the dietary food guidelines of the USDA came out, the food pyramid, the sad diet food pyramid. And so Steve's told me that at that time, that area of research immediately went toxic. Mm. I mean, and that's the thing, academia and scientific research is very political, very, yes. and he said all his collaborators went into other fields and he even had to modify his stuff a little bit and take mm. a job at UC Davis medicine. Um, because that thing went toxic at the, in, in that era, 1982. So there was no real work done on that till the late nineties. When, when you started to see the effects of the food pyramid, right? The, the high carb, low fat diet start to rear their ugly heads and there was a resurgence of like okay what are we doing here and that and the in that in that period was when people like jeff bollock started to look at the keto diet the carbohydrate restriction okay right okay um so what happened um so in so this is where so i came in and started doing this i started working with some early adopters and most of the early adopters I was working with were people who'd run out of, uh, options in the high carb camp, you know, the, the bonking, the puking, yeah. you know, it's just really GI, distress. GI yeah. distress. So they were willing to try something different and they heard that, that this was working for people and you could get by on a lot less calories. And so we started working together and we started getting really good results. People were winning races, but you know, there's always that question, where's your scientific paper? This is not possible. There's something else going on. You know, it's that Schopenhauer saying, right? Um, first they dismiss or ridicule you, then they violently oppose you. Exactly. And you. Become, yeah. we're, we're sort of, we're sort of like in that middle ground now, but starting to get closer to the mm-hmm. adoption of this. So mm-hmm. um, let me share a, uh, um, where's the share? Here's the share. Let me share a screen. Sure. Shot. Um, let's get this window window. Okay. Let's share this 
Um, so this is a comparative graph I put up and can you see it? Yep. We got it. Oh. All right, cool. And, and this will go out on your YouTube so people can look at it while I'm talking about it. Right. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, um, and, and, and then, and I want to give, you know, Louise some, some, some leeway on this because this is, this kind of explains it. And this is, cause I don't want to be negative or like damning people, but, but here's the deal. Like people were trying to crack this fat code. And so in, in the, all the research I'm using the last big research, but all the research people were doing suggested you couldn't burn fat as a performance fuel. And you've heard that countless times, right? Mm -hmm. So the Venable study came out of the Netherlands in 2005. It was on 300 athletic people. And that, that study suggested that the absolute ceiling of fat metabolism for athletics was one gram a minute. Yep. The absolute ceiling. Okay. That's what the science says was, was possible. And with most people, when you look at the, my cursor here, most people are burning actually less than half a gram a minute. Mm. So, you know, a simple, uh, envelope back of an envelope calculation, it like makes total sense. You can't use enough fat to fuel your performance. To actually go fast at all. Yeah. Like to go fast, to put out energy. Okay. And then 2015, the faster study came out, which was by uh, Jeff Bollock and Steve Finney. Mm -hmm. And it was taking two groups of ultra runners that were closely matched. Uh, One group was on a high carb standard conventional diet, similar to what bike, bike racers would use. And then the other were fat adapted athletes and all that, but two of those athletes were people I personally coached and trained to their fat adaptation. Mm. And all those people in their real world, they were not using keto. They only used keto in the data collection period. They were mm. using the OFM protocols, which included using Vespa. So they weren't using Vespa and they weren't adding strategic carbs okay. during the data collection. But in real world, outside of that, they were using strategic carbs. They were using Vespa to get the results they got. Okay. And all the two, two of the guys were people they'd selected who were high, high, just keto, straight keto people. Mm. Okay. So that, that study, all of a sudden, this red line is the one gram a minute magic red line. Okay. Right. Okay. That's why I have it through there. So Mm -hmm. the, in 2015, when this came out, all of a sudden it said, Whoa, wait a second here. Humans can burn way more fat than the science said before. Yep. And almost twice as much. Yeah, well, 2.54 to two and a, two and a half times as much as what these guys were right in that number. Actually, they were good fat burners. They were burning like 0.64 grams a minute. Yeah. Oh, okay. High carb. So they're good. They're better than even the Venable study suggested. So right. this is what. Sorry. Yeah. Prompted, okay. Right. This is what prompted Louise Burke in, in a week after the faster study published online, not in the journal, but. Louise Burke had a, a, a editorial out saying maybe we need to reconsider the nail in the coffin. Mm. And it was a big paper, one wink out, which which I was like, how did she do that? And then Steve said she probably was the uh, anonymous peer reviewer because she's one of the experts in this. Right. So she had access to this, the data and the and the paper before it got published. Yeah. So you see here how all of a sudden that shifted the thing. And this is peak fat oxidation. 
Mm. Okay. But in talking with the athletes in this and including John Rutherford, who is the highest recorded in the faster study at 1.78 grams a minute mm-hmm. and talking with the people I was close with, they said we, we were leaving stuff on the table. I know with Vespa and some carbs, we can push more. Um, and John, by the way, just ru- won the, the liege or something liege, something it was a, it's a race from Belgium to Paris, but the, there's a 500 yeah. kilometer race. Yeah. He just won the 500 kilometer race overall. He beat the team even. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 And he's, here's the thing. He's, he's not a, he's not a, uh, his cycling is just a side thing. Cause he used to be on the USA cycling team years ago in Tyler Hamilton's yep. age group. Yep. Um, and unfortunately he left that, um, because of the times he was in. And when they found out his dad was a veterinarian, the. Uh, pressure on him to deliver was so he punched out went in the marine corps flew f-18s then became the secretary the white house liaison for the secretary of the navy and then went into the state department so john hmm. currently lives in brussels and he's a he's a foreign service officer of the department of state to nato hmm. right now and his first posting was in central russia so he speaks russian yeah He's the State Department diplomat to NATO and speaks Russian. So okay. you can imagine the pressure he has on his yeah. life. And his wife even considers, there's a term for his wife calls calls herself, and she's a NATO widow. <laughs> because, oh. you know, wow. he has he has a wife, two sons. Her wife, His wife has a budding career as a writer of romance novels for middle school kids. And so they have a full life and he still is able to, to win this in his forties handily. Mm-hmm. And he's been okay. doing this for years, but he's, that's, that's the reference range. So we knew there was more out there. So we've been trying in fits and starts to get data and we've got some data from before. And it gave us that, uh, with Jeff Browning, who's a 52 year old ultra runner, who's still in the top 10 in the sport of hundred mile ultras mm-hmm. at 52, mm-hmm. but we knew in, and, we started to see this with some of this data. And, and so we started to pull data. And so last year in January, February, and March, we got some VO2 max data and Jeff and Peter, and this is Peter's data, but both Jeff and Peter were able to not only like, as soon as they start exercising, they're up to one gram a minute. You can see that right Mm -hmm. there. Right. And as soon as they start, their pace goes up in the demand. They're, they're one and a half grams. Like they're right there where the faster study was, but that that's not their peak fat oxidation. That's their all day. Yeah. Racing zone. Racing pace. Yeah. Right. And then when you go up here, they're actually able to sustain two grams a minute for 15 minutes. And, and we're talking, they're on a treadmill running sub six minute level. And they, you know, as ultra runners, they never do that. So that's very high intensity level work. And they're able to, to pull over two grams a minute. And when you, so when you look, do the math, the, the back of the envelope math, all of a sudden you've gone from half a gram a minute, which was what the standard said, and you do the math, you can't use fat. Well, you go to one and a half grams a minute or one, even one gram a minute, it fundamentally changes the paradigm of fueling. But it's, it's like, this is the thing. If you're on keto, which I, I suspect these, these two data points are the two subjects in the past who actually who those were your two keto guys those there. Were, those are the two straight keto guys yeah 
and we're the OFM guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the guys who are working at optimizing their fat metabolism, it's like, boom. And the interesting thing is we tested them right the day after on Vespa and they didn't do as well. They went longer, but their fat burning was reduced because, you know, you've done VO2 tests. They take, you yep. burn matches, right? For You're sure. not going to recover in 24 hours. Right. Um, right. So they were able to, they weren't able to burn fat as much, but they were able to go longer using the Vespa because that transferred to more glucose through the gluconeogenesis. And what's our yellow line on the bottom of that graph to the right? That, Is that, that's, that's your, that's your carbohydrate. Carbohydrate. Okay. I was wondering that. Yeah. Yeah. We have, a, we have all the da raw data for the audience. If they want to look at the okay. raw data, it's, it's on our website. Okay. But this, and this is why that, and this is the thing, like I say, it's a bridge fuel as well as a fight or flight fuel. So every mm -hmm. time when you look right down here, every time they change the pace, every four pace. minutes, Louis, yeah. they had that little blip of sugar and then it would settle back down. Yeah. That's how, that's why I say, you know, you know, when you start from a sedentary state to a active state, glucose is your bridge fuel. And this data is done by gas exchange, right? Yes, it's a, it's on a okay. on a metabolic cart on a met cart. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had an independent person do it, and she'd never seen results like this. And we we actually did one RMR on one guy, um, and his resting metabolic rate was 100% fat burn. And she's like, "Wow, 70% fat burn is considered excellent." Except, yeah, exceptional, yeah. Ex mm. And 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 Jesse, who was the most fatigued of all of them, because he gotten up at two in the morning from LA and drove out to Phoenix to do the test, to Scottsdale do the test. He was the worst shape to do the test, but he still pulled 100% fat burn in his RMR. Mm -hmm. So um, that kind of validates it, but it's, but you know, the people who don't want to get curious, I'm not saying this is published science. It's not placebo yeah. controlled, double blind, gold standard. What, what do you want? But people should be curious because this is data. It's not like it didn't happen. This is, this has happened. We have other data. I got to get that up, but we have other data on Jeff and others, um, that shows something is going on. Mm. I remember when we did Jeff at Utah state university, um, some professors milled into the, uh, performance lab and to find out what was going on. Cause it was like the first day of AK spring break. And they started looking at the, uh, screen on what the numbers were going up and they're like this isn't happening this mm -hmm. we got to rewrite the textbooks mm -hmm. because they, they they it just totally baffled them that this was happening and they said if the the their uh, colleague who's a professor there wasn't there and overseeing the calibration they would have said the text had calibrate the machine wrong right 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 and so you know the data the data is there and and as you can see you know all our athletes are easily capable of burning over a gram a minute mm. and, you know, exceptional. And, and to a point now I want to qualify this Jeff and one of the biggest levers they're using is not just the Vespa, not just the OFM, but they also live at in Flagstaff. So they're, so they're training up, up to 11,000 feet. They're training down to sea level, but they're living and training mm. at that sweet spot. You know, people go to Flagstaff, Boulder, Mammoth yeah. Lakes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's pretty well established. So living at altitude is one of those, one of those levers that confers higher fat oxidation rates because of that humatocrit. Um, mm. 
development. Yeah. And so so as part of this, how how do you feel about MCT rich foods as part of a fat adaptation protocol or part of part of an OFM protocol? Is that a thing that you talk about? Did I stop the screen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm all about, I'm all about like you getting as much as you can from whole foods, cultured, fermented foods, mm-hmm. uh, real food that's traditionally been eaten as possible. So the MCT oil thing is kind of a conundrum for me. I don't, I don't recommend people use MCT in, in training and competition because the digestive cost is, is high. And then for a lot of people, MCT oils will literally go right through them. I'm one of those people. I, I okay. have to be very careful. Yeah. 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 So I think it's, I think it's a, it's like a process. It's a process fat. Right. MCTs are, I mean, why not just take coconut oil and butter? Right. So that's, yeah, that's what I was getting at. Like what about coconut oil or, um, cacao butter? Right. So you don't, I don't use, recommend you use, unless you're doing really long days where you're going low intensity, where you can have the digestive resources available. Yeah. Digestive cost, the digestive resource cost is too high to be doing fats. I actually recommend carbo, concentrate carbohydrates and simple sugar. And when it's hot, simple sugars and get your hydration on point because you need the hydration on point, which means the electrolyte ratio, mostly sodium to water is on point. And then simple sugars, because that allows your, your stomach, your digestive tract to transit the glucose into your system, the calories you, you might want to supplement with osmotically rather than go through the digestive process. Right. 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 Okay. Mm. Um, it, and so, because fats have a big digestive cost. And then the other yes. thing, I, like when I talk to people about how they, their dietary patterns are, we don't do use the standard science of keto or carbs or anything. Um, I tell people like your base diet is non-starchy vegetables. You can eat as much as you want okay. because those carb calories they're you're going to fill up before you carb up right because the fiber content because the fiber and water content and the volume the physical volume right and what carbs are in there are locked in this fiber water major matrix mineral matrix and so they transit to your colon and they're actually almost all of them are converted to short chain fatty acids in your colon rather than glucose so they don't count period yeah yeah, that's and people leave out. You know, people have reduced down this whole amazing process of our bodies and physiology and digestion to these oversimplistic things. Like, oh, lettuce has this much mineral this, in it, or this, and, and, and this drives like, me nuts. Right, this focus on macros. It's like right it's macros so and these elements. And, yeah. and you know, when you yeah. look at what biome does, it's like it, it. It's you know, your body, your biome, and your liver—they're alchemists. They'll convert like a perfect example is how, you know, the carbs and locked in those non-starchy vegetables become short chain fatty acids and lipoproteins mm-hmm. in your colon or yeah. how your liver takes liver fat and makes it into glucose. You know, right? they, this is an alchemy it's, and it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and it's well established, but people don't, mm-hmm. don't, they don't, that message just, they don't know about the it. Average consumer. Right. Which is why we're having this long conversation. I hope people are on long rides and, and I, engage with us. <laughs> my, episodes, my episodes tend to be pretty long, so I really appreciate your time and, 
and oh, no, no, I'm all about this. So, so yeah. this is it's important for people to know this. So, mm-hmm. non-starchy vegetables add libidum because they they'll really help attenuate the hunger in your daily thing, not in your training and racing because you want to stay away from non too much fiber. Yeah. yeah, before you race, right? But right, but in your daily diet and all that, that's ad libidum. We use that as a as a lever to to keep you know for to help with satiety, and okay. then protein sources you see as real food, not shakes and all this stuff, right. you know, all these supplemental proteins and amino acids. I, I when people ask me about amino acids and branch chain amino acids, I said steak and eggs. That's my response. People ask me, what's your favorite protein recovery shake after workout? And I usually say a turkey sandwich. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people steak and eggs, man, and a yeah. couple of liver capsules. And man, you got the biggest yep. nutritional bomb for, yep. and, and so, so protein sources you see as food for protein. And, and that's something you got to kind of moderate depending on what you're doing and all that, because you need protein and you need protein with fat because what mm. people, what I'm talking about a lot that nobody's talking about because you know you hear protein is a thing right now, right? Mm-hmm. Is you can shotgun a bunch of protein, but it it's really about protein assimilation. Yeah. Once again, we're going to go down this rabbit hole. You if you eat if you're breaking a fast, meaning two or three meals a day or one meal a day, you break a fast with a fat rich protein rich meal. You're going to get this. You're going to get the stomach acid breaking it down. And then you're going to get this really good bile response because your gallbladder is filled up with bile mm. and that triggers the bile response. So you mm-hmm. get this really good ejection of bile into the stomach to emulsify the, the, emulsify the, right. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and it creates lipoproteins, which are proteins attached to fat molecules mm-hmm. attached to bile, which emulsifies it. So you get really good protein assimilation, right? More bioavailability. And it, and, mo- and mo- bioavailable to build muscle tissue, enzymes, hormones, yeah. everything your body's about that you need protein for instead of this low fat protein shake, which your body's going to absorb just because it it does that. But a lot of that protein is going to get converted to glucose and the amine group is going to get dumped into your kidneys as a metabolic load. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you'll feel great because you're getting this little extra hit of sugar, but it's, it's not it's not optimal. So you can be, you can be doing a ton of protein. If you're doing too much and you're not doing it with enough fat. doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't really matter. And it could be doing you, it's not optimal. Right. 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 Okay. So, so protein assimilation is one thing. And then what I found is when you are metabolically fit and doing this, like, like you have to be careful if you're trying to maintain a race weight, because I can't, if I don't moderate my protein intake, I can't lose weight. Mm, right, right. Or because my the body inverse of that is when we want people to maintain muscle mass, we make sure they have enough protein. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. But 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 that's a that's a very fine line because mm. if you're if you're assimilating protein really well, you're going to put on more weight than you really want. So you kind of got to mm. yeah. you kind of got to watch it, and that's why the, yeah. the starchy vegetables are are such a good thing. And then. What we do with the fat macro on the base diet is I just tell people use as much fat as you need to make whatever you're eating taste good, condiment it with, or cook it in or make a sauce. Mm. Don't count your macro because yeah. what we do is not a, is typically very rarely is it a super high fat macro, like a keto diet. It's, it's, there's plenty of fat involved, but it's not this 70, 80% fat. 
fat macro any more than it's a 70 or 80% carb macro. Okay. Right. And then we bring in concentrated forms of carbohydrates strategically based on what you're doing. Okay. You know, what that need is because like I typically recommend people um, like two nights out from a big, big race or ride or whatever they, they do medium rare steak and a loaded baked potato. So they, that carb has a lot of potassium in it to make sure your cells have mm-hmm. all their potassium. And then the night before I'll, they'll go light on the protein and heavy on a, on a grain based carb if they tolerate the grains well. And right. I usually recommend people, you know, a lot of people like to eat sushi. So I say, have a couple of bowls of miso soup and mm-hmm. sushi to satiation, nothing more. So they get a little bit of protein, mm-hmm. a lot of sodium, a sodium bolus, mm-hmm. but they also get rice, uh, sushi rice, which is a, a somewhat resistant starch. So they get that mm-hmm. carb sneak in there. And that seems to work really well with people. And we sneak the carbs in sometimes under a blanket of fat because the fat will blunt that glycemic. Oil. Yeah, right. Fat or temperature. If you eat the carbs cold, that helps, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. Or, All yeah, those things or, help. And that loading the night before really puts you in a good place the next day. So you don't need a ton of stuff in the morning, if anything. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah. Probably you're doing that now. You're probably having I'm coffee. Definitely doing that. Because these gravel races always start at seven in the morning or six thirty in the morning, so you're not you're not going to eat much. I manage to eat. Some people can't eat that early. I can get some food in, and I usually do. I'll just top things off. But I eat a lot the day before a hundred and forty mile gravel race, like a lot. You got right, right, right. You, you eat a fair amount, yeah. Right, but you'll you'll find like I don't know if you know a guy named Ethan Passant who lives in Crested Butte. He's one of the so. greatest greatest athletes you never heard of. He won the Colorado Trail race several times. Okay. One time he won the Colorado trail race and a week later he came in fourth at Leadville wow. when, you know, behind Dave Weens and Lance Armstrong yep. Yep. and yep. he was leading for a while and he was racing them a week after winning the Colorado trail race. And he was on antibiotics cause he, he got him, he dug himself a hole completing oh the Colorado trail race, you know, right. He right. got a bit of a kidney infection cause he dehydrated himself and oh. yeah. And he, and he still <laughs> was able to pull, pull forth. Um, okay. And was leading for a substantial amount of the race because he just, he just was that kind of, kind of guy. Yeah. Sounds like a beast. Yeah. Okay. yeah he's a beast. Um, so that's kind of how we, we, we do it. And, and so he, he said, oh, so, so the reason I bring him up was he had a saying that stuck with me. He says, I like to race hungry, mm. which goes back to that primal thing. I mean, you ra- you hunted hungry. <laughs> you did, but that's that's directly in conflict with most modern teachings about endurance sports, right? Which is all right, about he, oh, if you're hungry, you waited way too long, which is sort of a, a you know reflection of if you're thirsty, if you drink to thirst, you're you're probably dehydrated. Those kinds of conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he said that and it got me thinking about that, and it's like. Mm you're doing the right thing by tank topping off the tank the day before. And then it's just, it's like because of digestive cost, because you want your muscles, all the blood to be going yes. to muscles and skin surface. Right. Yes. And so you want to put your digestive tract on sleep mode. So it's like having the least costly source of calories you need yeah. in there, whereas calories yeah. and hydrate and hydration, right. Those are the two things you need calories and hydration. So yep. it's water electrolytes, and some simple calories that can transit the stomach and gut osmotically versus yeah. 
having to get all the monkey motion of digestion. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That is, that is the, um, the, the, you know, that's the, 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 what, what, what would you call that? That's the, um, that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. Right. Because that allows your body to do that. And, and then the other reason for that, there's another really big reason for this. Mm-hmm. This I found with my early adopters who had serious GI things because it forced me to really look at this. And in look, I went back to all the physiology, anatomy things, and then had some conversation with Steve Finney at the same same time. It really got me thinking about this. And like when you look at our our digestive tract, it's it's composed of what's called epithelial cells. Mm-hmm. Okay, the epithelium and the villi and, and uh, which make up the villi and the mucous membrane. Mm-hmm. And these are collagen rich. This is what another reason why I, I push the collagen. These are collagen rich organisms. Yep. And so, and there, and there, and these cells, your epithelial cells and your endothelial cells, which line your cardiovasculature, they're collagen rich and they're very high turnover. Mm-hmm. Okay. Relatively high turnover, say muscle fiber cells. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So, what I was looking at here, and this is this is really important for both performance and overall health, and why I say I think you can have both when you approach this multi-dimensional approach of optimizing fat metabolism. Those epithelial cells make up the villi, which is, if you can envision it, it's sort of like a, a brand new shag carpet. Yeah, to like fingers, right? kind of all yeah. these fingers, and they're and and so. What happens is when you're, when you're trying to exercise and consume calories at the same time, a lot of calories at the same time, you, you're, you don't have the optimal blood flow to them. So you're, you're going to create a lot of oxidative stress because you're burning a lot of sugar, right? It's carbohydrate-based foods. So a little is okay and maybe even adaptive, but a lot is creating a lot of oxidative stress, a lot of lactate load. In a, in a relatively hypoxic environment, because like I say, do you want to go and do vigorous calisthenics when you sit down to a nice meal? No. Right. Right. After a meal, you like to relax because, because your body wants to shunt the blood. It wants to shunt the blood to the epithelium to, to really work at optimal nutritional absorption. Yeah. To manage all that food. Right. Right. So when you're, when you're exercising, you're actually got a problem because your body's trying to perform with the muscle fibers contracting and expanding at high rates and shunting the blood to the skin surface to thermoregulate. Yep. And these epithelial cells are going to a relatively hypoxic state or a less optimal state. So you have all this oxidative stress. And I, I, the, the analogy or metaphor I use is think about what's, and it's, it's a very valid analogy in that realm of the cycle of life concept, right? Yeah. So, when you look at it, it's like, it's like what's going on in the Amazon rainforest. Your, 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 your epithelium is that hundred foot rainforest canopy of, of plants and trees. Mm-hmm. And then your biome is the fauna that resides in them. So if you have a hundred foot canopy, you can haul the huge and diverse biome. And then mm-hmm. you burn, literally burn that rainforest down by using a bunch of carbohydrates, the same way they're burning down the, uh, and you've got that stubble of grass, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden that stubble of grass has, doesn't have the capacity for a diverse and, and plentiful bio. So right. that first line 
of defense for your immune system is gone. Before yep. your immune system kicks in, the things that mediate and moderate all that are gone, largely. Mm -hmm. And then your digestive capacity is gone, right. largely, which makes you more dependent on those processed foods for your nutrition. Yep. <laughs> Oddly yep. enough. And then the, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the inflammation is, is through the roof. And that's mm -hmm. why when they smoke people, you see these stubble things. And, and, and in fact, you can't, it's hard to colonize recolonize the biome when it's in the state because it's so inflamed. And this is why you see celiacs, Crohn's, mm -hmm. all these different things. And then you shift the biome. And then, and of course, candida overgrowth is very ulcerative common. Yeah. Right. Ulcerative yeah. colitis, all these things occur. Mm. And you know what I, so this is what I saw early on. And this is why we developed this whole thing about collagen because it's collagen rich proteins are high turnover. So, we have a two-step process. It's first you get your epithelium, you you nourish your epithelium so it can grow back with the things closest to it, which these tripe soups and collagen-rich yeah. foods that traditional cultures consume regularly for a reason. It, it, you're literally first, eating stomach, which is, yeah, it's connected right. to the stomach of the other animal to, to right. heal your own, right? Yeah. Right. And that, in that aligned with that evolutionary um model that we we did pre pre-industrial pre-agricultural times and mm. then you colonize it with colonizing probiotics and there's you got to choose those because most probiotics don't colonize well right right and and to a point if you don't and so everybody's talking about probiotics but they're not talking about eating tripe soup to mm. re we you know they'll they'll talk you know uh, collagen supplements, but most collagen supplements are skin collagen, which is yeah. good. It's great. Don't get me wrong, but, it, but you want to get as close to what you're, what you're trying to rebuild as possible. Mm. And so mm. you, you build that epithelium back up and then call it, then the chance to colonize is there because when it, when it's, when you get to these, um, acute phases of inflammation of the, of the epithelium, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to colonize. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I give the speech to my athletes quite a bit. Um, especially when they come in, tell me if you agree with this or not, but people come in and, and I do, when I'm doing a bike fit, I do a pre rider questionnaire and I ask about their health history and their injury history. And sometimes you see these clear themes, right? Like people have had joint problems almost their whole life. It's like, okay, that leads me to diet and, and environment. And so I'll ask them a question like, well, what do you have a source of collagen in your diet? Because these are connective tissue problems, right? You had a knee problem, you tore an MCL, you did this, you've got hip arthritis in your hip or the doctor told now your neck's messed up. It's like, and the thing about call, this isn't always true in diet, right? Sometimes we eat things and they get alchemized into other stuff, but right. collagen, you eat collagen, it becomes collagen. If you have That's connective right. tissue problems, you're trying to heal a knee or trying to heal your gut. You'd need collagen in your diet, right? It's one to one. Over a third of the protein in our body is made up of collagen proteins, and it's right. high turnover proteins, right? Yeah, it's like it's a no-brainer. Got to replenish it all the time, and that's why I have people. Mm. That's why I, I go on and on about the collagen. Is people don't, you know, there's a lot of talk because of all the marketing of collagen supplements, but yeah. it's like no, you really need like if you get a bowl of menudo compata singrano. And mm. if you eat half of it and put it in the fridge, it, it doesn't become a bowl of jello. It becomes a block of collagen, like almost a plastic block. It's so dense. Wow. Yeah. 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 And huh. so it's, it's, it's vitally important that people recognize this because that stomach and gut health, 
It's your nutritional absorption. It's your, it, it does so much to reduce inflammation because it doesn't set your immune system off. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, once you, if you're chronically setting your immune system off, guess what? You're going to make yourself at a high risk for autoimmune. Of course. Right. The right. autoimmune is just, the system is so overwhelmed and inflamed that it attacks everything because it can't handle anything. Right. And, and yeah. your histamine response, everything. Yeah. yeah. It just, and, 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 but unfortunately people look at this as normal because of this high carb, low fat diet and and the marketing of processed foods because we're getting marketed to, and people, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but people are, are, so they don't know the stuff we're talking about. You know, if people are listening to this thing on a long ride, good for them because they're getting knowledge that you're not going to hear because there's no money in it. Right. Can't sell it. There's no, there's no money in eating whole foods. Right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, no. so people need to, need to hear this kind of stuff. They're not hearing that, that, that has mm. huge implications. It's, that's why the, the stomach and gut health is the third tier on our OFM pyramid is mm. because it is so foundational. It's first your fat adapted metabolic state, there's nutrition and not calories for that nutritional yep. balance and then stomach and gut health because, yep. and it all ties together. Right. Um, because of that, it's just so critical. People, I, I can't stress that enough, the, how much the stuff, and, you know, and of course, you know, your biome and your stomach and gut are like a third brain, right? There's a lot of signaling, hormonal signaling to the brain that yep. goes on. And, and part of it, we can go into the fasting thing. All of a sudden, intermittent fasting is a thing. Well, you know, if one of the first things we do when we do a metabolic reset is we get people off snacking because snacking is insidious. Outside mm-hmm. of like endurance exercise, snacking is one of the most insidious things you can do to screw mm-hmm. up your hormonal balance. And so you want to get the snacking out to where people are down to three meals a day. Then often for most male athletes, it's two, two meals and one meal's a main meal. And one meal's sort of a light meal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't, you, you can have your coffee and cream in the morning, but most people, yeah, you should be able to get up in the morning and have a little coffee or tea. And if you want to have cream or sugar in it, that's fine. Or you can go do nothing and then go till like 10, 11, 12 o'clock without thinking much about food. And even then it's like, oh, it's time to eat. Not like I got to eat now or I'm going to rip somebody's head off. Die. Right. Right. And so this whole thing about intermittent fasting becoming a thing now, and you have all these online people with this structured program, it's kind of like, like I was telling you about the diet thing with the macros and the calorie counting and what mm. food you can eat and can eat and blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is, this is silly because you have all these programmed fat feeding and fasting windows. And it's like, this doesn't make sense because you got to build your metabolic capacity and it's contextual. If you're training a lot, your fasting windows are going to be a lot shorter mm. than if you're sending, if you build your metabolic capacity, you're going to be able to open those up. But here's the thing. If you're doing one of these online programs that has a set number, right? And you're thinking about food and starting to get hungry two hours before you end your fast, you've already messed up the, one of the main goals of the fast because your body's already turning the metabolism down, uh, turning the hunger trigger up. So you overarch your eating. You're going to store more. You're yep. supposed to go, you know, way, way we teach is to seamlessly go between meals without much and, and just sustaining that and maybe extending it out. So you get into that deep, you know, that deep keto fat burning state that is going to allow you to, 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 to fast seamlessly and then break a fast without going crazy. Mm-hmm. 
because you don't want your metabolism turning down. You don't want your hunger trigger turning up, but that's, that, you know, that, that's why these, these feeding and fasting windows don't make sense to me. There's always more to it. And people need to think about that. You need to just go between meals without thinking about it. And, right. and, and pretty soon you get in a, a lifestyle where there's no stress about it. You just realize you've just gone 20 hours without eating significant calories. And part of my strategies with fasting is like the trivial calories that are in bone broth or just even the cheap box stock or a VA juice or a Vespa that you can use in, in your fasting. Those trivial calories really don't count. Okay. And they'll keep you hydrated. They'll keep that trigger down because you don't want that, that physiology to get set in motion because that really will. That will rumination. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, you, I could see that requiring a lot of coaching, right? Because some athletes that, especially if they've been trying to lose weight for years or food is a very central focus for them, it can be quite difficult to get them to look away from that and, and adopt that process. But I, well, it has to do with, you know, it has to do with our evolutionary heritage being hijacked by modern marketing, right? We focus on one yeah. thing. We are predators. So we're, we're made to focus and stock. So it's just like, oh, we go in that direction when, you know, we go in that direction based on that signal. Yeah. And, but it's like, you got to stop that and look, look at a bigger picture about who you are. And it's, it's actually, you know, it's complex, like you say, to teach, but the actual execution, once you get it down, it's just, it's pretty simple. It's, it's simple and you don't even think about it. Yeah. Like, I mean, you probably had those since you've gone on this journey, you probably had those things where you know, you get busy with something and you forget to eat and pretty soon it's 18 hours, 20 hours have gone by and you haven't had a meal. Sometimes that happens to me. I tend to be pretty food focused, but I also feel like my body composition has been close to ideal for most of my adult life. So based on that, well, you, probably have, you, have a high, you have a high workload training load, right? Um, my training load's been, I mean, it used to be, I've been racing for 35 years. So now my training load is probably like most age groupers, you know, between eight and 12 hours a week. But I've also, because I did 15 years as a pro, I can jump into Steamboat Gravel and race seven hours and I can even on not that much fitness, I can fake it pretty well with, you know, old man strength, which maybe is fat metabolism probably is on some level. It, but, it, it is. It's a metabolic fitness you built up. Yeah. I mean, my friend Charlotte Hart, she was one, one year she was the California crit champion here in California, Davis, right? Mm -hmm. And she can jump into, and she's, she's come come over to the dark side with me about doing the big mountain runs because she loves the mountains but she can she can literally not get on the bike for months get on go into a race and yeah. be in the top five yeah yeah you know she's got that kind of that fitness. kind of yeah so like, oh, but yeah. but the, the fasting thing is like i don't know how to articulate it well enough but but you get what I'm saying about if you start thinking about food and you start to get hangry you're you're already defeating some yeah the the main one of the main goals of it so you want to keep that in check mm. and you want to go for it because autophagy that cellular cleansing is also really important mm -hmm. and, and the, the the science is really clear on that it's always been clear because you know we feasted like i said evolutionarily as hunter gatherers we feasted and fasted and those traditions those natural evolutionary traditions were carried over as as humans became agrarian and then before the industrial age, you know, this is why religions do, you know, regular fast. Ramadan, yeah. uh, Lent, mm -hmm. you know, all your religions have these 
practices. The Buddhists have these practices of fasting. And they probably weren't consciously aware of the, the bio underlying physiology by it, but they knew there was something to it. Mm -hmm. Just like they knew there was something to eating the whole animal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but I also think that if we get that foundational health back, then we can leverage it with all these modern tools, like the cars, mm -hmm. like all these mm -hmm. new carb delivery things. And that's where you can get the performance. Um, what do you think about all the modern drinks that try to titrate out carb delivery and bypass the stomach, like the Martin and all those? Oh, I think, you know, I think they work, but I, but, but the push to just make them that one thing, right. Mm. And the push to do 80 to 120, or some people are doing 140 grams an hour. Yeah. 140, 150. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, this is, this is madness. Yeah. Well, I, I can see maybe for a few selected um, things like, like know, never staying or whatever. Yeah. Never staying or a, um, in the right conditions or um, the grand tour guys, you know, on certain yeah. stages. Yeah. Right. But that's, that's 0.001%, 0 0.001% right. of the, of what most people are doing. And, and, and in the context, there was an out, article in outside magazine by Alex Hutchinson about, you know, the pros and the take homes and carbs. And it's like mm -hmm. marathoners, you know, 85% of their fuel comes from carbohydrates. Well, it's like, he's talking about them elite marathoners in a race and it's not their training. That's not what they do during training. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's like, it's a very small window that they're actually at that level of carbohydrate utilization. Same with, same with the pro tour bicyclists. I mean, in the off season, they're doing longer rides, getting fat adaptation. Like, you know, when team sky was dominating, they were, they were in the, in the lead up to the seas, the real hard training suit blocks. Mm -hmm. James Morton was in, adopting a lot of fat adaptation, adaptation. strategy to yeah. build that base. Um, and, That's interesting. And, and, yeah. And I've worked with an Olympic gold medalist, as a swimmer and swimming is a purely glycolytic competition, right? Right. Right. But how do swimmers get to that elite level? It's hours and hours of looking at a black line at the bottom of a pool. Right. 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 And they're doing that aerobically. So this is one of those beautiful like moments of metabolism, how it explains how nature keeps everything in balance. Right. Because I'll, I'll outline this and then please feel free to shoot this down or disagree accordingly. But okay, well, we really have athletes who <laughs> athletes who are naturally glycolytic. And then we have athletes who are naturally more slow twitch aerobically based. Right. And when an athlete shows depth and they can do all the things they can tap into either one of those energy systems, just like we were talking about with diet, you could, you can have a piece of pizza and you could also have, you know, an avocado and you're okay. And a salad and you're not going to freak out. So we have athletic depth when they can access and utilize all those energy pathways. And, but what's beautiful about it is that, Aerobic metabolism can run off of fat, can run off of carbohydrates, right? But it also runs off lactate as a fuel and glycolytic metabolism. Certain, organ, certain organ, organs are really good at, la, la, at processing lactate processing as a fuel. Lactate. The, heart, right. the, heart, the heart loves lactate. Right. But, it, but it's rate limited. Remember that. Correct. We'll talk about that. Yeah. So the, but the point I'm getting at is that glycolytic metabolism produces lactate as a byproduct and necessary byproduct of glycolysis. So right. when you have an athlete who is 
naturally off the couch, their glycolytic engine is huge. You know, they could go rip a 20 second sprint and make 2000 Watts or whatever, but they never, you know, to stereotype for a minute, we have the like fat, lazy sprinters. I know a lot of these guys in my life, they're, they're, they sit on the couch growing muscle all the time and that's their thing. That's their phenotype. And if they're, if they don't train their aerobic system to complement that and that glycolytic system or that raw neuromuscular power, they become so imbalanced because they can go out and just smash it for 20 seconds and produce this massive wave of lactate. And just like everything in metabolic, in the world of metabolics, there's a time delay, right? So it takes a little while for it to hit you. But when it hits you, if your aerobic system can't help empty that bathtub, you're just paralyzed, right? You're like laying on the ground, like just panting for minutes and minutes and minutes, just totally cross-eyed. This is the old track uh, kilo rider paradigm. They go absolutely blindingly fast for a minute or so, and then they can't talk for an hour. And But <laughs> if we train both systems, then we get, the ability to do that giant effort, but then not be completely buried in your own metabolic consequences, right? And then vice versa is also true. You have a climber who's got this massive aerobic capacity, but they train their glycolytic system to surge and recover. Then now they can deal with change in pace. They're not just a diesel. They're not a 28 mile an hour rider who just can go one speed all day long and go pretty fast. But then as soon as someone else is on their wheel and they attack them, they're done instantly. They can actually surge and recover, surge and recover. So we get this these, um, beautiful athletic moments where people have depth and it's like the way in which nature kind of counterbalances itself out, but even expresses itself in the weird sport of cycling, which is based on us riding around in these Victorian era contraptions, right? This learned, learned sport that has nothing to do with survivalism or human nature or walking or running or throwing. Yeah. What do you think about all that? Okay, this is a this is a great segue because I'm not going to agree or disagree. I'm going to kind of frame some things that'll I, I think will help you understand what you're saying because you're right. dead on about it's about getting that. It's called metabolic flexibility, but you can't get that flexibility without building metabolic capacity. You can be metabolically flexible, but you can't if you don't have the capacity. It's like you say, it, it, somewhere down the road, you're gonna, yeah, you're not going to get very far. You because. You have to be metabolically fixable because if you take away one energy substrate, you better be able to go on another. You may not go as well, or you may go shorter, blah, blah, yep. blah. But yep. let's, let's, this is a good, i mentioned this briefly when I made that quip about bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at this, and this is a conversation I had with Steve Finney, who's a world-class researcher, MD, PhD, but it also confirmed with physiology and anatomy books, textbook stuff that nobody argues about. You've got three basic types of muscle fibers. You've got your type one slow twitch aerobic muscle fiber. Yep. Then you have your type two A aerobic fast twitch muscle fiber. And then you got your type two B anaerobic fast twitch muscle fiber. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there are genetics, like you know, you have some people who just, you know, they see a they see a kettlebell and they they instantly start putting on muscle mass. And you have other people <laughs> like me who I can exercise no matter how much I I try and do resistance work. I'm not going to get big and bulky. So there is a, some, ge- I will say there's genetics, but I've been working to a point. I've been working with some guys who are big, muscly guys and, and you're absolutely correct. And the thing is, is to find that balance. You want to try, you know, you, you do have to have that basal slow twitch muscle fibers, but for most people out there, unless you're competing literally in the Olympic dead deadlift competition, yeah. You kind of want to 
be really sparing on that type two anaerobic fast twitch muscle fiber because it's not mitochondrially dense. And what happens is if all you're doing is putting on these high resistance, low duration loads, your body's going to have to respond to that metabolic need. And it, and if it doesn't have the cardiovascular system, doesn't have the metabolic capacity, you're going to put on a lot of muscle fiber that's the cells are mitochondrially deprived. They're not optimal. You need right. to build metabolic capacity and you need that mitochondria because that's what's going to cause the cellular restoration. And mm -hmm. going back, once again, I can't give you a simple thing. We got to remember you need that really well-developed cardiovascular system to deliver all that blood. So that's why it's so important to develop your cardiovasculature first so you can maximize plasma flow in and out yep. to build type 2 aerobic fast-switch muscle fiber, which has that flexibility, and it has the mitochondrial density. So when you need to burn matches, like if you're surging on a climb, you know, you've got to surge and go back, surge and back, or you're sprinting, or you're attacking – um, you know, or even riding a threshold, you have that capacity to have those matches without just depleting you. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, I remember it was either 2015 or 16. I was working with Roman Bardet. Yeah. Uh, when he got second mm -hmm. and he sent me like two weeks in, he sent me a, an email saying, wow, this is going well. I feel great. Um, and this was on the rest day, the second rest day. Next day, he won the stage and then went on to get second in the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. And he was just feeling really great. Um, but it, it's it, it's that kind of thing where where when you make that shift, it doesn't have to be a huge shift. 10, 15, 20% doesn't have to be this huge thing like we showed you with Peter Mortimer where you're burning two grams a minute. Just that significant, you're going to reduce that lactate load. And lactate, even though the body's adapted to, to harnesses of fuel, even though it's spun off, it's still rate limited. Right. right. So if you're really glycolytic, you're going to overproduce lactate to overwhelm the systems like the kidneys and the heart, which can yeah. use lactate as a fuel source. And plus you got to, you got to shuttle that lactate out of the, the muscle cells mm -hmm. to the liver, to the heart in order to use it. So it creates a lot of metabolic. So the less you have to, produce of a lactate load and keep it within that rate limited level um you the the better off you are and that's why lactate mm -hmm. is a, just like ketones are a proxy for for fat metabolism yeah lactate's always been a proxy for fatigue right and right now you have you have this big thing on what's called the norwegian method which is nothing more than lactate training Yep. And it's been around a long time, but they put a new slips. It's got a new label, right? Mm -hmm. um, so have you heard some of the conversations with Inigo San Milan on Peter Atia's channel about uh, Pogachar and the, la yeah, the, and it's, the it's enzyme funny, that transports it's funny, lactate? It's funny. I'm going to qualify this because Inigo, years ago, before this became a thing, Inigo in front of a whole people at a bunch at a training peaks performance endurance conference, mm -hmm. one of my peeps asked a question, Stephanie Holbrook. She asked a question about fat metabolism. This is pre, pre, pre faster, right at faster. Okay. And he publicly humiliated in front of everybody. Mm. Okay. And he it was all about the carbs. Yeah. And so I've read some of the stuff and he's on the right, he's on the right track. He's not, 
quite there yet, but he's on the right track because he's looking at the mitochondria now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's trying to figure it out, but, but here's the thing with him as a researcher and I don't know him very well, but I've heard some interview. I heard that interview. I can't remember it too much, but the, the Peter Atier, in, you know, it, it's, it's, it's within the confines of science, mm-hmm. the guardrails of science. They're talking about studies and this and pointing to references. And like one of my, one of the guys I look to that I, I, I identify with is a guy named Alan Savory at the Savory Institute. Mm-hmm. You know him? No, he, I don't. He's, he's like into this whole grassland, re- restoring desert, desertified grasslands. Okay. And he's found that, that when you take the great ruminant herds and you clump them together, mimicking how the predators clumped the herds together, you actually regenerate grasslands. Yeah. And so in the topsoil, in the topsoil right? Cause they're, right. they're, they're urinating their feces their 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 you know hooves are doing it mm-hmm. uh, doing stuff and they're eating the grass and it and it it's it's part of that cycle of life because what he found when he was a ranger in Zimbabwe when they called when they were having these problems as Zimbabwe became more settled in farmlands they were culling elephants and the because they thought that was overgrazing was causing the the problems and okay. when they culled them the problem got Things worse got worse yeah. Right. But when they returned it back to that natural mimicking nature with that natural thing of these great herds moving in these bunches and intensively grazing certain areas, the grassland, the weather pattern, everything changed. Okay. And he's, and, and so one of the things he's talked about, um, and I have a vlog on it where I use that clip is most of the innovation comes from outside the bricks and mortar of academia. Yeah. And so when I listened to that, I, I don't remember the details, like I said, but where, you know, that was like, they were all both Peter and Ennio were, were talking about established science. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is the problem is like, you know, when Stephanie got up and asked him about fat metabolism and he blasted her at the time because he wasn't even there yet to this whole mitochondrial thing. It's, it's that, you know, when you're doing something that's back to that Schopenheimer thing, when you're, when you're ahead of the science and outside the science, yeah. you, you, people don't, you know, it's, it's hard for people to, to know what you're doing. And then they always want to fall back on the thing. And I think part of that is, is because we've evolved to the point where, where we, we, everybody wants things risk-free. So you have to have all the data. Nobody, mm. you know, it's gotta be in a published study. It's gotta be institutionalized. Like it's gotta be the, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like, no, something's working here. We need to look at it. No, it's not established, but but you look at all innovation, it's usually it's usually brilliant people that are outside on the on the fringes that are yeah. driving innovation, you know, like Steve Jobs, heck, even Apple pushed him out of his company. He was so right. out there. Right. Right. You look at Walt Disney. Walt Disney's history is really funny because when he decided to make Steamboat Willie, people thought he was crazy for making an animated cartoon about a mouse. Yeah. Right. And then that came along, he made a, a mountain of mo- money, and then he put it into this full-length color feature animation. People thought, a fairy tale cartoon, full-length feature? Mm-hmm. I thought he was nuts, and there was Snow White. Again, yeah. made it. And then then after that, he went on and made a bunch of animated stuff, and then in, in the late 40s, he got this idea of a theme park. 
people mm-hmm. thought he was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Chuck would and, say the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their backs. Right. Yeah. There's a saying yeah. called pioneers get scalp sellers prosper. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, you know, now is coming into that prosperity thing because all of a sudden he's seeing this, this, mm. this thing about mitochondria, whereas when, when he blasted Stephanie, he, he wasn't, it wasn't on his radar screen mm-hmm. and he was still looking at that conventional model of, of sugar and he, and he, he still need knows and rightly so that you need carbohydrates and a lot of them yeah. to perform. And as a bicycle coach, um, you know, he's got to get, get results for those teams he's, he's consulting for. Right. 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 Um, yeah. Right. So what I was getting at there is just that I think they were saying that Pogachar has a an unusually high level of this enzyme that transports lactate across cell membranes. I can't recall the name of the enzyme, but that was his, this, what they had done to study in his case was that was suggest it would suggested that that was his sort of genetic edge that he had this unusually well, high it, enzyme, it, uh, quantity it, of this enzyme. And he may have a genetic predisposition, but there also might be something in his bio. There's a whole bunch of things like epigenetics, right? It's like what, yeah, we're all the same. We're all different. And yeah, there's some genetic, but I think people pull the genetics card out way too soon. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so Pogachar, it, was it a, that enzyme allowed him to do what? Burn more carbohydrate, burn more fat. What was the, I think it was processed more lactate. So his lactate levels are much lower. He could generate these big waves and these glycolytic efforts, but they didn't really, he never had his bathtub flowing over to go back to that analogy. Right. Yeah. And here's the thing, he, he also, he, but he's also obviously a very big fat burner. And like, like this year, you know, one of the big reasons he didn't do as well at the tour de France is, is he simply didn't get that block of training in that he needed to build his mm. base. Right. So here's the thing. I, I, I think it's more what we see with the athletes we're working with is the more you can shift to fat metabolism, the less lactate you're producing, right. which means you don't have to spill over in those so when you, yeah. you know when you're doing those surges you, you you're all, all of a sudden producing a lot of lactate well if you can shift that somewhat so your basal lactate load is 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 small to none like in that you know get your aerobic your fat burning to where you're burning fat at your 75 80 85 percent of your vo2 max which is what mm-hmm. our data is showing you you're capable of mm-hmm. right and the faster studies show that too yeah but for those that sweet spot of endurance racing now you can burn fat Right. Okay. Right. And then save that, that those spikes of lactate. I think that that's got more to do with it than the genetic yeah. enzyme. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, back to this whole thing with this Norwegian method with the lactate. I mean, I remember in 2010, do you remember today? Vajavec? He was a, he was uh work. He was the J- GC writer for AG2R in 2010, 2011. Not at the moment, but okay. Okay, he he was another Slovenian rider, and he was the top, okay. he was he was the GC rider for AG2R at the time. I went okay. over Italy Italy to 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 work with him, and he was doing really well using the Vespa supplement. We were modifying his diet just a little bit. He still mm. needs a lot of carbs, mm. but part of the reason I was going over there was to make sure he was clean because this was a time where there was a lot of stuff going on. And guess who he was training with? Mm. Who was his coach? Who? Dr. Ferrari. Oh. <laughs> and, and so, so I got. So what'd to, you find I out? To, well, no, this is this is an interesting thing. Okay, at that time, that was when they 
figured out the whole EPO um, yeah. deal. And Ferrari was act- actively telling people, don't use EPO because they can test for it. Right. And so I went to Italy and tr- and I actually ran it myself for, for my training, but I also was with hanging out with Ferrari and, and today and a couple other riders on that same hill that Lance used to train on out of Rio Veggio. Yeah. And they were doing, and that's what Ferrari was doing. And he was doing lactate training. There was no talk of anything other than that. I went and lit, stayed at today at his house. There's no sign. The guy was probably politically naive by working with Ferrari, but Ferrari. Yeah. I have to be honest. I mean, because we didn't discuss anything, my interaction with him had nothing to do with the dark side. Right. So my, it's like, I could see this guy, he was doing charting lactate. And he was talking about VO2. He said, gosh, today has a good, has a good VO2. It's like 74, but he said Lance was up there pushing 80. Yeah. yeah. Right. Lance had a big engine. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but they were testing them as they climbed this hill. And so lactate's a big thing. So if you can reduce that lactate, he was really kind of stunned how today was doing really good on the lactate and he was using the Vespa because that reduces that lactate load. Right. That a little shift, but okay. Just so people are aware, and and please again correct me if my physiology is mistaken or incorrect here. But you know when we measure lactate in the blood, whether it's at the end of a five minute effort or twenty minute effort or whatever, it's, it's a, a product. It's a proxy, and it's a product of there was a certain amount of lactate generated, but then some of it was consumed. But we don't really know what those ratios are. We don't know how much of it was consumed by aerobic metabolism in the time between whenever it was generated and whenever you measured. And we and yeah. so we're measuring the delta, the the remnant of that whole of those several processes, correct? So, right. so, so what's happening? You have to be careful here. about the conclusions you draw. Correct. Right. But okay. what you can draw from that is if your whatever your lactate millimole is in your blood. Yeah you're exceeding that rate of lactate processing flush it flushier yeah utilization right right right? and that's why it's a it's a very good tool just like ketones are for ketosis yeah it's a very good tool and it's a tool right Mm -hmm. to measure fatigue level impact on mitochondria i think that that's a big thing that this norwegian method that's a big sort of nuance about the Norwegian method is they're, they're being very mindful of, of the impact of glycolysis on cellular health. Yeah. Cellular robustness. Like that's why I focus on metabolic conditioning to build metabolic capacity. So you can get that big dense mitochondria Mm. and get them, you know, like I say, if you do the fat metabolism, you build mitochondria because it's all your build things are done on fat metabolism. Plus you have to have all that oxygen mm. supplied to the mitochondria to burn. If you make more mitochondria and you, you want to use beta oxidation as the substrate, you got to have a lot of oxygen delivery. Right. 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 You right. with right. me on that? Yeah. Right. But here's the beauty of the fat metabolism for performance. All of a sudden you create that oxygen capacity. So say you're doing elite level stuff like, like, you know, performance, high, high end cycling. All of a sudden, you have this oxygen capacity for glycolysis that really can up your performance level. And you have the mitochondrial matches you can burn without burning yourself up. Right. It's a complete package. It's a complete package. Mm. But it's mm. much more complex. And it's, and, and like, you know, there's that saying in business what, what gets measured gets done. Yeah. 
And that's the same thing in research. It's like, it's like everybody researches on what you can measure and build data sets on. And, and the problem, and this is really important for the audience to understand the problem with research science, basic research and science, um, is not just the, the monetization and the monetary incentives for it, but really that the scientific method looks at one thing and tries to isolate and control all the other variables. And this gives us an understanding of that one thing. But in the real world, those var variables are in flux and, and you really need to not focus on that one thing. You need to understand what that one thing they're studying is implying. And then how does that fit into the rest of the pieces of right. whatever uh, sports you're applying it to? Yeah, I, I completely agree. The, the, yeah. So Science people miss it's reductionistic. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and that's the thing is, it's the problem is, is, is yeah, it's, it's absolutely reductionistic. And with the delivery mechanism, modern communication and marketing, you know, it's always this delivery of a one trick pony. Yeah. The other challenge is that science ostensibly should be something if we ask a question in scientific, it should be falsifiable as their concept, right? You should be able to disprove something in order well, to true. prove it. Right. And if right. it's not, if it's not falsifiable, then it's not within the domain of science. But here's the problem I have with the science mind is they assume that because it's not within the domain of science, that it has no value. This is a cultural thing, right? This is the worship right. of the altar of science. And this is complete bullshit. I mean, Absolutely. you know, it's like, oh, this hey, is my man, world. Welcome to my world. Right. Kobe. Right. Like, Hey, do you love your wife? Well, ask anyone that who's married. Yes. I mean, maybe not every day, but yes, of course I love my wife. Right. Cool. Prove it to me. Where's your double blind study? How much do you love her? Do you love her 1 million or do you love her seven? How many, what units do you love her in? Like yeah. you can't quantify it, but you know, you know, you love your wife. I mean, do you really know it? Like, you know, you that you intuitively know it. Like, like your, your Correct. innate sense is, you know it, but you, you but you can't prove it. And, and that's the thing. Scientific, the problem is scientists are human and they, they, they tend to, they forget that and they tend to study what they like or are interested in. Mm. And the scientific method, when you form a hypothesis, you're actually trying to disprove yourself, which is really hard to, to do, especially today. It's like I say, everybody's right in their own mind. And then well, you're, it's especially true you're when your to, paycheck depends on the outcome of this or your grant funding or your grant right? funding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Your that's your survival in today's world. Your survival mechanism is money. Yeah. Right. So and, conflict of and, interest and, potentially. Yeah. Right. And, and, and people want to take the safe bet, not take risks. So something outside that box or something that disproves your hypothesis and, or, or confounds it. Or if you work at a university setting and you're working under professors who have been, who have been working under assumptions for decades or generations, and then you come along with this new novel idea and you're the pioneer, you're like, Hey man, all this stuff you've been believing is complete bullshit. Like not to slay a holy cow, but terrain theory versus germ theory. One example, right? Yeah. Is it, is it one or the other? I think it's, a, there's a lot we can learn from both. I agree. But if you challenge the paradigm of that feeds your family, 
you'll get. Yeah. Well, it's like you'll Steve meet Finney resistance. Said, Steve Finney said in 1983, when the after those dietary guidelines came up, yeah. the whole research in carbohydrate restriction became toxic. And and, and in, yeah. in academia, you get you literally get blacklisted, and you don't get funding, you don't get positions yeah. in academia, yeah. uh, and and it, it because all the funding was driven by that food pyramid and and because of the confluence of the Vietnam war the social um the the social movement right um mm-hmm. and then the feminist movement and the hippie movement mm-hmm. and then right on the heels of that that or in in conjunction with that you had the green revolution where norman borlaug won the nobel prize for creating the semi dwarf aztec wheat which Fundamentally changed the protein, the gluten protein in the wheat, but also increased yep. the yield by 10 times. Yep. Plus, they yep. they developed all these great strains of rice and corn to produce more. And there was a lot of money there. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that just basically killed off really good research in in carbohydrate restriction and what carbs were doing on a long-term mm-hmm. basis for a period of about 10, 15 years. Mm. interesting because it became it like steve said it became that that Tapping. that area of investigation became toxic it became radioactive yeah so you know and you need both it's like i say i'm not i don't want to beat up on any of these camps but i got to kind of call them out on on what they what they're not willing to talk about whereas you know whereas you know the keto camp won't talk about the performance limitations right the high carb camp won't talk about the unintended consequences which are pretty well profiled now. I mean, they're, they're pretty obvious. It's like you say about love your wife, the the limitations of straight keto are pretty self-evident. It doesn't yeah. take a double blind shot. And the, and the, and with, with what we got going on in the health sphere with diabetes, heart disease and all that, the, the unintended consequences of high carbs, carbs, carbs. Yeah. carbs, carbs, carbs is self-evident. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but, but that messaging is like mm. pretty powerful. It's, it's pretty powerful how people have, you know, mm. bifurcated into these tribes and they're unwilling yeah. to have a discussion. So thinking about that, I mean, like it's sort of inevitable if we think about the concept that you and I right now, we could go just holding our little pocket supercomputers here, this thing that costs a thousand dollars or whatever, a ridiculous amount of money, all these rocks, this is really expensive rocks effectively, right? We can learn more on this in one 24 hour period than someone living in 1899 could in an entire lifetime. So, I know Thomas Jefferson, who was a, a Renaissance man, didn't have this. But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. What Thomas Jeff- Jefferson or Ben Franklin or Robert Oppenheimer or or Albert Einstein had that most people don't have today is curiosity. Mm. You're so imbued by fear because we're so tied to this. We're mm. so dependent on this or the next gadget that mm. we forget that I mean, I saw literally a month ago. I listened to a woman on a speakerphone have a total, complete meltdown mm. because her phone went off. She somehow gotten a sixty-year-old woman, woman who grew up in an age where cell phones didn't exist, have yep. a complete meltdown to where she was. Her trip to the Alps to do hut to hut hiking and all that. She was talking about canceling it. Months in the planning. All this stuff. I mean, she t- totally had a meltdown, a freak out, didn't know where she was going because she didn't have her GPS. Mm-hmm. Totally freaked out over a device that if she didn't have it in her life, she wouldn't have the problem. Right. Right. So 
it's that unintended consequence. Unintended consequence. Yeah, yep. yeah. We have this device that um, we can learn more than somebody can learn in a lifetime back in those more primitive days, but yet those unintended consequences are just as bad, if not worse. They're massive. And, and so I think that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, the, I think the bifurcation and the polarization of so many of our culture and so many issues, whether we're talking about politics or, well, all the things, I, I really think that's a side effect of this world because we, we're inundated with so much information and so many expert opinions that people become paralyzed. This is the problem. They become completely well, paralyzed also, or they become also, tribal. And they right, but you're talking about us worshiping this thing, but yep. we're also worshiping these gurus and forgetting that we're our own best guru and trusting that. Yes. We may not know, but trusting that that we have and, and these people should be our guides. That's why I like I tell people, I'm not a guy, I'm not I'm, a, I'm not a guru, I'm a guide. I'm I'm yep. gonna I'm gonna have to do the work, but but you know, we're here to help you go right. there because I've got experience yep. in this. And and then on top of that, all the stress that's creating the cortisol that's putting you into that fight or flight modality. Like I said, we're pinging mm -hmm. primitive fight or flight hardware in ways it was never meant to be done yeah. with a chronic Absolutely. basis. Yeah. Yeah. That, Everything that, from the, the super bright LEDs to the, the way the information is delivered and rammed in our faces. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, in, and in, in this reductionist fashion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so navigation so, you know, of this world is a life skill now. It's a, it's a necessary and learned life skill that you have to have in order to protect your health and well-being. Really? I, I think you have to navigate this device effectively. Otherwise, what I'm saying is you have to actually, what I'm really saying is you have to put fierce, um, strict limits around how you use these devices, how you are, how you adopt this information or how you, um, allow this information to come into your life. If you don't, if you just become a phone zombie you'll you're it's your like, it's like giving, a, it's like giving a 16 year old male a kawasaki 1000 ninja exactly yeah that goes any direction instantly at once <laughs> that's right yeah that's right i yeah. mean you wouldn't you wouldn't give you wouldn't give your kid a, a dodge viper for his 16th <laughs> birthday right and, and yet we're giving kids the equivalent yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's it's a it's a it's an interesting world we live in. And, and, the, and the thing is, is on a positive note, like you say, these, these tools are wonderful if they're used harnessed properly. I mean, that like, like in the bifurcation, it's like, like the whole gun debate, right? It's like, yeah, it, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, the whole Haber Bosch project that, that created, um, uh, modern munitions. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's called the Haber Bosch yeah. project. It, it won the Nobel prize, but it's how they capture nitrogen okay. in the atmosphere. And it's very energy intensive, but that's how modern fertilizer is made. But it was originally developed for making gunpowder. Oh yes. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm yep. And, and, and so, you know, the gun, the whole gun debate, the gun is just a tool. It's how it's being harnessed and politicized that's make it's mm. it's like you know and i know that sounds like a right-wing thing it's, it's really not it's it's just a perfect example of how whether it's your phone a gun a yeah. fast car a motorcycle it's just you know or an airliner i mean we were celebrating 9-11 it's like airliners move us around it's created it's created globalization mm. right mm. 
Mm. Uh, my dad was a pilot for Pan American when, you know, during the the jet age, right? So mm. that's what opened up the world. That's what created globalization was jet air travel. And yet, you know, a, a couple of Arabs were able to turn that thing that revolutionized the world into a very destructive force. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and, but, but these things that we, we're not recognizing that something as benign as a jet airplane or a cell phone is, yeah. has gotten it. It's uh, also one of the un unintended side effects of technology, I think, is that people are learning how to weaponize so many things. Oh God. Whatever happened to sticks and stones? <laughs> I mean, just, just this on uh, this shaming and public bullying online is just, yeah. Is like it's it's weaponizing stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I think the human it's 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 like I say it's this human condition and and there's to this whole thing there's part of this program it's become more and more like a psychological spiritual journey as as much as anything else and it's like people need to step back from all this fear based stuff they're getting and realize you got to take risks and and there isn't a sure thing out yeah. there but there is a way and that they got to get back to trusting themselves and mm. and <clears throat> recognizing the frailties of the human condition that there are people you can trust but there's also people out there that whether they intend well or not yeah it's not going to work for you for you and 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 i think that part of it is our hubris and we need to get some humility mm. but and and faith because i i think that we've inculcated too many fears through belief systems because belief systems are very rigid. Like you believe this is like it, right? Yep. And, and to me, faith is acknowledging you actually don't know, but you're going to proceed forward anyway. You don't have all the answers, mm -hmm. right? Whereas you believe something, it's like, I know this, right? right. Whereas faith is like, okay, I, I, I have faith it's going to work out, but I don't, mm. have I don't know how. I don't know how, but it's going to do this. And it's like, that's the thing with, with it's very convenient to go with these reductionist messages, but people have to realize that, like I say to, to people now, it's like, are you one dimensional? Mm. And of course the obvious, it's a rhetorical question, right? Right. Nobody's one dimensional. Well, why are you looking at a one dimensional solution if you're multidimensional? And it's, mm. you know, it's, it's like, in this health sphere, I like to, the metaphor I like to use is think of yourself as a symphony conductor, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't actually go down and play any of the instruments, but he's kind of like gently guiding mm -hmm. all the different instruments to play in harmony. And it, it's going to play music. And depending on how well you're conducting things, yep. <laughs> music can sound off and funny and wrong, or it can, it can all, all those different elements can can sync up and and really get you in tune to really you know yeah. have all those things come together into a beautiful concerto yeah a beautiful yeah. concerto now before we end this another thing that fat metabolism not just the athletic performance but with regard to like blood sugar and all that um one of the things we see very commonly in this has to do with the psychological emotional spiritual part but also with the performance part Mm. is more fat adapted you get the more blood sugar stable you are yeah right mm -hmm. and that's critical for executive function so focus and then hand-eye coordination motor skills 
And so those things degrade before you even sense fatigue. So if you're doing a, a sport like cycling is one, right? Because it takes a lot of motor skills, but like mm-hmm. say soccer or basketball or figure skating. Um, yeah. Those things require razor sharp motor skills, quick bursts of energy. And when you sense something's off, you've already gone past that. You've already gone past that point of no return from retaining that uber sharp stuff. And, and in 2002, Vespa sponsored a figure skater named Alexei Yugudin. Okay. And he won, he won the 2002 Olympic games with perfect scores. I don't know if you remember his performance. Mm-mm. Amazing. Okay. 2002, you can look him up 2002 winter Olympic games. He, he was just okay. a phenomenal of that, but he won every competition he entered. Mm. Okay. And a men's long program is only four minutes long. So it's not an endurance sports, but he right. was using the Vespa and where he found, even though he, it worked for him for his performances to be s- solid. And he won everything he, in that season. He won every competition he entered just absolutely dominated. He went from being top to dominate. Okay. But where it really mattered for him you know, for, for figure skating was in figure skating, this blood sugar stability is really important in training because as so- the coach is watching the skater closely. And as soon as he starts to see that sloppiness set in, yeah. he's off the ice. He or she yeah. is off the ice because they're either going to do the move wrong or they're going to fall and injure themselves. Right. And what right. Alexi found was he could train significantly longer, get that muscle memory mm. really tuned in to where he just, that's how he dominated was it was in his training, which led to those performances where it was just, go out and do what he was doing every day. Mm-hmm. And that's that blood sugar stability. And that's, that's another thing that we, that we really see is, is that mental focus that you get when you're doing everything. Right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you so much for, uh, our long conversation today. I think I might have to split this one into two parts when I release it just to, uh, oh, yeah. I do a lot of two, two hour, hour and a half, two hours, but we're over three now. So well done. This is one of my okay. I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I did. I, I did very much. Yeah, it was a great conversation. We went to a lot of cool places. So yeah, and if people want to have us back, we can maybe we can okay. they can request on a certain subject, and we can try and keep sure. it within the borders, right? Okay, I like it. I like it. So yeah. there, there you go. There's Peter's offer. If you feel like that's a thing, then um, tag us both on Instagram and ask a question, and maybe we can get Peter back on if you want to hear more of what he has to say and. Uh, just to to wrap things up here, please tell people where they can find out more about Vespa and you and your channels. Okay, so we 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 actually bifurcated things because yeah. uh, because we were confusing people, right? Okay, because a lot of people think so. Vespa Vespa is something you can use as a standalone. So this is a good first entry for people who are curious about this because you can try Vespa without a change in diet. And people okay. were getting confused. They thought you had to do a keto diet because they had no frame of reference. We got lumped into keto. Right. And they thought, oh, I can't do that. And then the other thing is they look on the pouch and she has 19 calories and they just can't figure out how it works. Right. Right. Okay. So vespapower.com is the site that has the products. Mm-hmm. And then ofm.io. So it's optimized fat metabolism, ofm.io. I optimize. Mm-hmm. OFM.io is for the information, the content, our blogs. Um, okay. Yep. Personalized coaching if you want it. We've got some programs to help people get on their way. And um, 
you know, we have some tools even for coaches like you that can help you um, help more people. Cool. Yeah. So OFM.io for the content, the uh, information, the programs, and VesperPower.com for the products. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you, Peter. Really appreciate it. Congratulations, Space Monkeys. You made it to the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to go try some Vespa for your own personal laboratory of one, there are two pathways. Both of them involve direct links, which will be listed in the show notes. However, I'm going to tell you one of the direct links right now because it's pretty easy and you can probably just type it in and get there. The link is vespapower.com forward slash coupon forward slash alignment 25 forward slash note that 25 is spelled in digits not in alpha characters so one more time that is vespapower.com forward slash coupon forward slash alignment 25 forward slash and when you click on that direct link you can place an order and then you have a coupon code to enter the coupon is alignment 25 in all lowercase And again, 25 is in digits. Now, you got to spell alignment correctly because we did. So if you don't spell it right, it won't work. That's one little caveat. The second pathway you can use is to click on the direct link, which will be listed in our show notes. And that will get you a sampler pack. And it's $40 of Vespa product that you are being offered for free. And all you need to do is pay shipping. Now, shipping in the con US is typically 20 bucks for this bundle. So really you can think of it as paying $20 for $40 with a free product and free shipping. That's another, another Rubik's way to think about it. In any case, that sampler pack will give you a taste of what Vespa is all about. If you just want to give it a crack without jumping fully in, if you're all in and you really want to go big and make a big order, then you probably want to go with the alignment 25 coupon code. As you know, I am afforded the luxury of only recommending products that I have used and believe in myself. And Vespa is in this category. So know that this product meets my standards. Go forth and enjoy. Let us know what you find out, what you think. Let us know your experiences. You can message Peter and or I on the gram. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the first part of this conversation and the second part, if you make it that far as well. We've got a lot to talk about. Pedal consciously. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers, a lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that The opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. 
That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.